Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Chosen podcast. I'm your host Josiah Meyer and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today is the big one and I'm trying not to be nervous about this or to overthink it, uh, but this is a podcast I know that um, lots of people will see the title and be like, oh I need to, I need to listen to that. Uh, they'll skip forward to it, they'll skip back to it. And so I want to do a really good job. Uh, we're going to be talking today about um, pre-modernity, modernity, and post-modernity. And um, I hope I do a good job. I hope that uh, I'm able to get the material in the, the time allotted here. Um, I do want to mention that it would be good for you to go back and listen to the two previous podcasts. I recorded one on what is a worldview and one on evaluating worldviews. And um, there's going to be things in those two podcasts that will... Um, I needed to take them out of this podcast so that I could try and get it into the time allotted. And they'll be helpful as we move forward. So the big idea is there's actually four uh, worldviews that we're going to talk about in this podcast. And it's going to be kind of an overview. It's going to, We're going to move fast. And I'm going to try and get it all into one podcast. So we're going to talk about polytheism as the, way, the worldview that people had before Greek thought. And then we're going to talk about Greek thought and pre-modernity and how Christianity and Platonism fuse together to create um, the, the pre-modern system. And then we'll talk about modernity and the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And then we'll talk about post-modernity and where we are now. So hopefully we can cover about 2,000 years of Western thought in this podcast. So polytheism. Uh, I'm going to graph out a bunch of stuff for you, and you're just going to have to close your eyes and see what I see in front of you, but these, these aren't complicated graphs. So, in the previous podcast, we talked about worldview and how, um, or two podcasts ago, we all receive sensory perception of the world. So you have a little guy, a little stick man here, looking at the world. So there's a dotted line between his eyes and the world. And he sees the world through his five senses. He sees, feels, tastes, touches the world, hears the world. Um, but we can't really just make sense of only our five senses. We need a bigger picture, something to put what we see into a larger picture, a meta-narrative, a big story. And so behind the world is going to be our worldview. And it's like, it's like the world is a stained glass and behind it is, you know, our bigger picture that produces light. And the light shines through the stained glass window and now we see... The, the shapes on the wall, and ah, it makes sense. If we don't have light behind there, it doesn't make sense. It's just sensory information. And so in polytheism, um, behind the world is, and I have a box, a, a kind of dot, dot, dot box here with just a whole bunch of arrows pointing in random directions. And this poor little stick man is confused because he's looking at the world, and behind the world, he's got Zeus, he's got Aphrodite, he's got all these random gods and spirits and ancestral spirits and who knows what else affecting the world in random and completely unpredictable ways. So um, we're going to talk about two things, science and ethics. So in science, um, there's a real limit to how far he can go in trying to systematize and organize his sensory perception of the world. Because he's gonna, he doesn't know if water is boiling um, because it's heated to 100 degrees Celsius at uh, sea level, um, or whether it's boiling because the spirits of the fire are fighting with the spirits of the water, or because Zeus is angry at the water, making it boil, or like he doesn't know what's going on. Um, because there is an, a disorganized um, 
religious system that creates a disorganized worldview, which makes it impossible for science to progress. As well for ethics, and I did mention at the end of the previous podcast, there are other ways of doing ethics. Um, but um, ethics as we know it in the West, being able to say something is objectively wrong, something is objectively right, um, and then being able to hold a dictator accountable to say, as Nathan said to King David, what you did was wrong, you have sinned. Uh, you as the king do not have a right to kill a man and take his wife. Um, because there's a, a law higher than you, there's a morality higher than you, that we all see and that we all agree on. In polytheism, this is a, this is difficult to make. Uh, different religions do find a way to make an objective claim like that. But it's very difficult because you might say, well, Zeus does this sort of thing, so why can't I? This god over here might be displeased, but this god over here agrees with me. So ethically, it's hard to progress um, as well as scientifically. So this is kind of the default position of most of the world, uh, most of the worldviews and most of the cultures uh, up until the time of, um, of Athens, Greece, when we have democracy being formed, and then we have um, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And these guys lived from 469 up to 322 BC. And the way it worked with Socrates was um, kind of the, the pioneer of a new way of thought. Plato was his disciple, and he wrote down most of what Socrates wrote. Socrates didn't actually write anything. Um, and then Aristotle was the disciple of Plato, who sat in his class uh, for, they say, up to like 40 years or something like that. And then eventually Aristotle branched off and created his own school of thought, in competition to Platonism. So you have Platonism and Arist Aristotelianism, um, which are two competing, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, there's a famous painting by a Renaissance painter that I forget at the moment, it might be Michelangelo or somebody, Raphael, I don't know, go through the Ninja Turtles till I find him, um, Donatello, <laughs> um, in which... Uh, Plato and Aristotle are walking together, and as you notice, and, and they're in Athens, there's all these philosophers around in togas, you've probably seen it online, uh, and as you notice, Plato suddenly uh, has his hand pointing upwards, and Aristotle kind of has his hands pointing downwards, and he's also holding a book under his hand. Uh, and this refers to the two different ways that Plato and Aristotle uh, approached the same material. They both believed and the big idea of Greek thought is that there is one God. There is a monotheistic system. This might surprise you, but monotheism came before Christianity. Um, and this is what lifted the West out of its muck of, of the, the polytheistic system and an inability to progress. Um, early Christians made the claim that uh, Plato and Socrates stole this idea from the Jewish Bible uh, because Judaism was a monotheistic system that, you know, certainly predated uh, 469 BC. Uh, I, I don't know whether that claim is true or not, but certainly uh, Platonism has the same basic idea of Judaism and Christianity, that there is only one God. So, why, yeah, and, and so, just to finish my thought, Platonism, or what Plato would do is he would refer to the God up in, up in heaven, and then try to work his way down to earth to explain the earth uh, based on philosophical concepts that he had uh, deduced from God. 
This is deductive reasoning. Whereas Aristotle would be looking at the ground, looking at trying to study science, now that he knows that the world is stable and orderly, as we're going to talk about in a second, um, and trying to reason his way inductively from the world up to God. So this is the difference between deductive and inductive study. Plato would be a deductive thinker, and Aristotle would be an inductive thinker, studying the world and trying to move upwards to God. Um, okay, so we have our little stick man again, and this time he is happy and he has an exclamation mark above his head, because he's looking at the world, and through the world, behind the world, he sees one God who created everything, who is behind everything, who is rational, who is um, powerful, who is all-knowing, who is... Um, who has created an orderly world, who is absolute good as well, absolute truth. Or rather, his perspective on the world is absolute truth. And so, now the world makes sense. And you see already, I mean, if you don't go any further than this, right away you see, aha, this, this explains a lot. Um, now we have a foundation for science. Because the world is knowable, it's rational, it's separate from us, um, and it makes sense. So water boils. Why does water boil? Well, it's not just because of random gods and random spirits floating around. Um, it's because God created it that way, with certain laws in place, because God is an orderly God that created an orderly world. So let's see if we can figure out what some of these laws are. Let's see if we can figure out why. Let's, let's see if we can do some repeatable experiments um, on why water boils. And then, hey, it, it water, water boils differently at this place than at that place. Maybe sea level uh, atmospheric pressure comes into it. We can have all these theories about it. Because God exists, uh, we can have um, natural sciences. And Aristotle was the father of modern science. Because he posited that there is one God that exists... He was able to posit that the world makes sense, and we can start to examine and study the world. And so we have, um, you know, the beginnings of biology. We have the beginnings of uh, physics. We have the beginnings of geometry. We have the beginnings of um, of all the natural sciences coming out of Athens, Greece. From natural sciences, then we have applied sciences. And uh, so now we can start to systematize the things that the thinkers are, are coming up with in the colleges and universities. We can bring these things together and make them, uh, like, systematize them. So then we can have medicine, we can have physics, uh, we can have, you know, larger systems of understanding the world. And then from applied sciences, now we can have technology. We can have architecture, build better buildings. We can have um, war machines uh, that you know increase our world dominance. We have food production, comfort and entertainment um, advances. We have transportation advances, etc. So all this amazingly grows out of a monotheistic system because there is one God that made everything. All of a sudden, science is possible. All of a sudden, all these advances are possible. And I know that's a, that's a crazy, outlandish, extreme claim. But I think it's historically viable. Um, if you look at the history of thought, it really comes back to these three people. Uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And if you look at what's different about them versus the, their surrounding people, why was Socrates killed? Uh, Socrates was killed for his beliefs because he was accused of teaching atheism. Because he taught that he only believes in one God, not in, in polytheism. 
the difference between this way of thinking and the surrounding culture was the difference between polytheism and monotheism. And monotheism was what lifted the world up to be able to begin the quest of modern science that we now know as modern science. As well, ethically, and I talked about, a lot about this in the previous podcast, but um, it is possible to create moral systems, ethical systems, without objectivity. But if you don't have a fixed point of reference, it's impossible to say objectively, that is, whether any, that is, um, belief independent, person independent, whether there's somebody that believes this or not, something is still wrong. It's always wrong. Rape is always wrong. Uh, torture and abuse of children is always wrong. Um, and protecting and caring for your children um, is always right. There's certain duties that you have, certain moral obligations that are always right, and some that are always wrong objectively. If there is one God behind this world that created the world that is absolute good, absolute truth, then it's possible to create a moral system and say some things are absolutely right, some things are absolutely wrong, and we'll talk a lot about that in future podcasts on morality and ethics. Um, But I just want to mention that without one God behind uh, the world, an objective system becomes very difficult. Um, And it becomes very difficult to to say that something is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. It comes down to preference. Um, And if there's many gods behind the world, you say, well, this God says this, that God says that. You know, I choose my God, you choose your God. Uh, And in the previous podcast, I talked about... um, Objective morality is essential because without it, might makes right. Uh, without it, without some sense of objectivity where we say this is absolutely right according to these standards that we all agree on, then whoever has the biggest stick makes the rules. Within an objective system, if there is a God, if there is absolute morality, then it's possible to say um, to the king that he has sinned. The person with the biggest stick in the world is still smaller than God. And so Nathan the prophet goes before Daniel, before David and says, you have sinned. And da- David says, yes, I have. In a lot of systems that wouldn't work, polytheistic systems where you know either the king is God or the king chooses which God to serve, uh, that wouldn't work. Okay, so that is pre-modernity, that is Greek thought. Because there's a God out there, science is possible. Because God is out there, ethics is possible. And Aristotle, by the way, is also... um, I'm not sure if they call him the father of modern ethics, but he's extremely important for modern ethics as well. Um, Because of, you know, the one God behind there, so we can talk about what what is really good, what is really bad, what is really the good life, what is really... uh, How should we live... Now, the problem with all this, this is all fine and well, and it really um, created, um, you know, several hundred years of huge advancements, very, just leaps ahead. Um, But there's a built-in flaw with Platonism, and that is uh, the inability to really create a fixed point of reference. Uh, Socrates, um, he's famous for the Socratic method, which is uh, finding truth just by posing questions, posing questions, posing questions. And his belief was that there is certain ideas that are just innate within us, and that if you pose enough questions and and guide people through questions, they'll realize the truth that's already in them. And uh, he's got a famous dialogue uh, where he, uh, Socrates, took just a slave boy that was uneducated, that had no formal education, and just through 
asking him a few basic questions, he, this slave boy, and asking him in, in layman's terms and basic ideas that he could understand, this uneducated person was able to explain a very philosophical system or, or a mathematical concept, I forget exactly, um, that the philosophers were, were talking about. And he said, look, even this basic guy has this certain information within him. So the idea of Socrates is that there's a god up there that created the world, and um, because he created it, there's, there's fingerprints of perfection on us. Even though the, we're not perfect, we, we remember it. There, there's this impression of it. And so Plato talked about going within himself to find perfection, and then seeing perfection in the world. And he had this, what's called a Platonic flight of, um, I believe that's what it's called, um, this kind of a quasi-spiritual experience of, of kind of spiritually ascending up to God and then coming back to the world and trying to express, you know, what he saw, the perfection that he saw. The problem with this is that um, it's not really a fixed point of reference. One person can say, well, I had this spiritual experience and I think, um, I think this about mathematics or I think this about ethics. I... I had this spiritual experience and I think that pedophilia is just fine. Somebody else has, says, well, no, I had a spiritual experience and, and my internal compass says that pedophilia is absolutely wrong. Somebody else, you know, and so we have this division. There's no fixed point of reference, ultimately. Uh, it was a great idea. It was a great starting point, but it doesn't really work when people start disagreeing with one another. Uh, if all that you're saying is just look within yourself for truth, there's there's certain things within us that we all agree on but when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of the world where there's limited resources where there's passions when there's desires the internal compass can get can get pushed pretty easily back and forth and we end up with disagreements we end up with fights and um, this idea of the absolute truth um, although still helpful it's still helpful to say that but truth is out there let's talk about what truth is and uh, let's try and get there. It's still helpful to talk about that. Um, but without a fixed point of reference, that ultimately falls apart. And by the time of Christ, about, you know, Jesus lived from uh, minus 5 up to 33 AD, um, you know, 5 BC up to, uh, or 4 BC up to 33 AD. Uh, approximately, and about by the first century, about by this time, Platonism had kind of fallen apart, uh, and it had reduced down into, after being a very exciting um, idea, very exciting philosophy that really people were excited about and moved forward with, um, had reduced down to Stoicism, uh, which was just a pragmatic way of looking at the world, um, and just being tough, and, and not focusing on the physical, just focusing on the mental. It had reduced down into cynicism, which, as the name implies, was just a cynical view of the world, um, that, or it's what we get the word cynical from, um, that the world doesn't really make sense, but we just, you know, uh, and, and social conventions are based on idiotic rules that don't really make sense, nothing really makes sense, kind of a nihilistic view. Um, and... Um, Greek thinkers were actually looking elsewhere. They were looking to the religions of Egypt, the really old, I mean, worshipping crocodiles and snakes sort of crazy religions. Um, and mystery cults and secret rituals and um, 
just trying to get through their life uh, without asking so many big questions because it seemed like Greek philosophy for a lot of people had kind of failed them. It hadn't really worked out. Um, certainly, I mean, there's still Platonistic schools of thought. There's still Aristotelian schools of thought. But in a lot of ways, it, it was a failed system. Uh, the other way that had devolved, I should make a list here. Uh, was was Neoplatonism, and Neoplatonism talked a lot about the distance between creation and God. And Plato didn't really have an explanation for why, if, if God is so perfect, why we are so imperfect. And so Neoplatonism talks about, okay, well, God is perfect up in heaven, thinking about thinking he is untouched, unmoved, unchanging. Um, but coming off of him are other gods and other deities that he creates, and these, one of these gods and deities must have made us and, and trapped our eternal souls into this temporal, into this fleshly world. And uh, that's why we're here. And so there's all sorts of these systems uh, that are kind of loosely called Neoplatonistic systems that explain who this intermediary god is and why we're here and how we get free of it. And so this is where you have Gnosticism, uh, which, you know, why we know about them is from the Gnostic Gospels also because it was mentioned briefly in the New Testament also because it was huge in the early church um, and uh, you have and Gnosticism is about oh we have the secret truth of how to escape from this world um, and so you have all these different options it's just this huge smorgasbord, smorgasbord of different options uh, because the, the, the mainline pre, uh, Platonistic system had failed because there was no final point of reference. And then Christianity comes on the scene, like a mass crusader in a red cape, to save the day. And what originally seemed like an affront and a logical, um, seemed like foolishness to the Greeks, that, um, that the word became flesh, that Jesus is God incarnate. So they were thinking of a God that doesn't move, that doesn't change, that can't change, that can't be touched by the world. Um, like the concept of justice, or like the concept of the number three. These concepts don't change, they don't move. That's what makes them concepts. This is how they thought of God. and But God became flesh and dwelt among us. How could the number three become flesh and dwell among us? It's, it's just, it doesn't make sense to the Greek world. And so in a lot of ways, when Christianity came into the Greek thought, yes, there was a lot of overlap, yes, it was monotheism, and so there, was, there were things that, that applied, but there were a lot of ways where Christianity really clashed with, with Greek thought. But once they sorted that all out within the first couple hundred years, eventually they created a system together, um, which was... Um, able to use a lot of the benefits of Platonism and Aristotelian thought, the scientific method, ethical system of Aristotle, and, and all these other things. But now we have, what do we have? We have a fixed point of reference. Because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the perfect revelation of who God is. And um, in scriptures, we have the revelation of what God thinks, how God acts, who God is. So now... Oh, I meant to have our little guy staring through the world. Um, so, now our little guy is happy again. You didn't know he was sad. Um, so, in Platonism, the little stick man is looking through the world, and he sees behind the world a number one. 
So there's just one in a cloud. And now he's happy because behind the world he sees one God. The problem with Neoplatonism is you have multiple people here looking through the world. And they're each seeing it in a cloud, number one, number one, number one. And so they're each seeing something different. And then this creates, you know, we're back to square one with polytheism. You have your idea of what God is. You have your idea of what God is. You have your idea of what God is. And we don't get anywhere. We ultimately reduce down to um, cynicism and stoicism and neoplatonism and gnosticism and mystery cults and all the options that were there in the first century. Now, with the pre-modern system, this is now the pre-modern system, this is the, what we had in the Middle Ages, the little stick man is looking through the world and behind the world he sees God, he sees Trinity, he sees a triangle here in the cloud and the the Trinity explains the world. And anytime there's discussion, no, I mean, I think that my God, um, you know, endorses rape and murder. Uh, this is the God that I worship. No, that's not the true God. Um, that's not the true God of justice. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the truth. Um, because one God was posited, and because it was the Christian God that is monotheistic, that reveals himself... Um, all of a sudden, everything made sense. And this is where uh, and the accidents of history happened here, um, that we had the fall of Rome and we had the Dark Ages right about the time when we were just getting our philosophy figured out. Um, and so through most of the Dark Ages, um, it was just trying to rebuild after the huge fall of Rome. Uh, it was trying to rebuild politically and, um, and socially from that. Um, but there was this great philosophical system where that eventually was able to create the Renaissance. And we're going to have a podcast on uh, the Middle Ages probably next, actually. Um, but um, we often look back on like the Renaissance period and we say, oh, well, come on, like they were so backwards. The church was in control of everything. It, they, people were so stupid back then. You look at their science and, and their... their um, medical techniques and things like that and you're like they were, these people are so primitive yes from our perspective they were but one needs to not critique them based on our perspective but based on what were the available options in the world at the time and based on the options in the world at the time even the late middle ages was light years ahead of the rest of the world and into the renaissance period um, as the, the greats of Greek thought were rediscovered as uh, society finally got back on its feet after almost a thousand year um, of being destabilized after the fall of Rome, um, incredible things were discovered, incredible things were unlocked based on this pre-modern system that we are looking at the world and behind the world is one God that makes sense of things, that reveals himself. Let's talk briefly about what revelation is. Now, revelation is... Um, very tightly tied to the word mystery in Christianity. And mystery is something that uh, it not necessary. we're not talking about something spooky, not talking about something weird. We're talking about something we're not talking about smoke and mirrors when you're talking about mystery. We're talking about something that could not be known unless God revealed it. So the great problem of Platonism is that God is unknowable because he doesn't speak. He's up there in a cloud thinking about thinking, unchanged, unmoving, uh, and we can't know anything about him because um, to try and get at him, like he's just too far away from us. Um, 
in Christianity, yes, God is, is perfect. God is far away from us. And yet he reveals himself. He speaks to us. Uh, he came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to the Israelites. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to the prophets. And then he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he revealed what his heart was. He revealed what his character was. Um, that This is revelation. Is um, God's self-disclosure of himself and realities that we wouldn't know otherwise. There's no way we could have guessed the Trinity uh, unless God had revealed it to us. There's no way that we could have um, guessed the ethical system that Jesus that Jesus laid out, loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, um, and uh, leadership, you know, uh, washing a leader that should wash his wash the feet of his disciples. Uh, that's revelation, and that is um, that is what saved Platonism and created the pre-modern system. So the pre-modern system, what I'm talking about, pre-modernity, what I'm talking about is the system that they had, um, especially from about a thousand or eleven hundred up to fourteen, fifteen hundred. Um, sorry, up into 16, 1700, and then in some places right up to the present. Um, I mean, Christianity, at, conservative Christianity is still pre-modern. Um, I'll, I'll talk about modernity is liberalism, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but this, this pre-modern system, I would argue, really provided all the foundational framework for the scientific revolution. It was the philosophy of the Renaissance period, and it, it led into the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution and the Industrial Revolution of the 16, 17, 18, 1900s. Um, now, again, an accident of history is that right at the height of um, Western thought in, in, the, um, in the early 1600s, a man by the name of René Descartes, uh, Descartes, I'm not even sure how to say that in English because I just see it in French, René Descartes, um, he came up with a philosophical system that became, and he became the father of modern philosophy. Um, so we used to have a little happy stick man that is looking at the world, and the world makes sense because behind it he sees God. The problem with this that was increasingly becoming problematic throughout the Renaissance period was that the church was corrupt. And then we had um, the, um, the Reformation in the 1500s, 1600s, um, and the Catholic Church became fragmented into the Protestant Church the, and then the various types of Protestant churches. Uh, it had already been split between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Um, and so it became more and more difficult to say there's one God behind there because there's the Catholic view of God, there's the Protestant view of God, there's the Orthodox view of God. So it was becoming a little bit difficult. But we still have one God back there that's still enough for science and for ethics. Um, but René Descartes, um, his motivation was actually uh, apologetic. He was an apologist like I am. And he was trying to find... a, a a philosophical defense for God. Um, one of these great examples of somebody that um, tries to do something and ends up doing the opposite. Um, he was trying to say, 
Um, we can't just posit that God is and therefore we think. We need to have a philosophical foundation for explaining why God exists. And so he needed to have a foundation other than God to prove God because you, proving that God exists because God exists is, is circular. Um, or proving God exists, therefore there's science and we scientifically know that God exists, that's circular as well. And so he said, I think, therefore I am. And he wrote it in, uh, I believe, Latin. Um, and so it's, uh, there is some confusion. I should write that down. I uh, don't know, don't remember exactly how that is. Ergo something. Anyways, um, either I think, therefore I am, or I doubt, therefore I am. There's some ambiguity. But he said, I can doubt everything in the world. I can doubt flowers. I can doubt trees. This could all be a lie of my sensory perception. I can doubt God. I can doubt everything. But at the end of all my doubting, I realize there's a me, there's an I, there's a self sitting here doubting. And so that's the one thing I can't question is myself. And so he says, I'll use myself as my starting point. And then from that starting point, he reasoned his way up to God and says, I exist, therefore this, therefore that, therefore God exists. And I forget the whole steps, but that was his system, which really um, his apologetics wasn't... Um, isn't really discussed today. What's mostly discussed is this starting point of self as a starting point. And this started the whole progression of modern thought. Um, this was quickly absorbed into academia, which was aching for a system which would operate without God and especially without the church. Um, therefore, many of the great discoveries of the Industrial Revolution, of the Scientific Revolution, um, were done under this modern system and seemed to prove the rightness of the modern system. It was also instrumental in freeing science from uh, the, the academic system of the church, which we're going to discuss in future podcasts. Um, the church and the state and the academic system were all, all fused together throughout the late Middle Ages, um, which was great at the time, but at a certain point, science needed to grow beyond that. They needed to need to break free, need to break those three apart so they could work independently. Um, when you're in crisis mode, uh, trying to restart your society, um, that system worked, but uh, as we as we develop past that, we need to, need to have those things separate again. Um, enlightenment thinkers... Uh, that the Enlightenment was 1637-ish to the 1800s, um, were arrogant enough to dub themselves modern and say that all that came before them were pre-modern. This is why we're still talking about pre-modern systems versus the modern systems. And they created the construct of the Dark Ages, which, while it's rejected in academic circles, still thrives on a popular level. Um, there is certainly a sense in which, after the fall of Rome, there was... A regression and there was a dark age. Um, dark ages happen all throughout history. Uh, there's the Bronze Age and then there's the Bronze Age collapse and then there's a dark age and then there's the Iron Age. Uh, when civilizations collapse there's often kind of a, a, um, a regression there, and it we're going to talk about this at length in the future podcast but it wasn't our fault. It wasn't the church's fault. Um, these things happen. Uh, in fact, it was the church that helped to dig the West out of the hole they were in. But Enlightenment thinkers, in their zeal to um, 
to continue to push the church as far away from science as it could and to make a big division between the church and the state. Um, created this construct of the Dark Ages and pre-modernity and started pushing um, conflicts from the, um, from the Renaissance period, which the Renaissance is uh, the 1400s, 1500s, uh, 1600s, 1700s to a certain extent, but especially the 14 and 1500s, um, pushing conflicts from that time, especially Galileo, Copernicus, stuff about um, trying to break free from Aristotelianism. So this was a huge academic debate that turned messy because politics was in there and so people were, were getting killed because they were on the wrong side of a scientific debate. And this conflict got pushed back into the Middle Ages in the conception of some people that the church was holding academia back, which couldn't be further from the truth. The church throughout the Middle Ages um, was the bastion of education. There was no education outside the, Catholic, uh, outside the church. But these, these conflicts of the Renaissance era were pushed back into the Middle Ages um, so that in, in the thinking of many people, um, the Middle Ages was the church's fault. If it wasn't for the church, there would be no Middle Ages. When in reality, if there wasn't a church, there wouldn't be, um, there wouldn't be a modern period to look back on the Middle Ages. We would still be stuck, probably, unless another society had, had developed past it. Um, what we call the Dark Ages is, is kind of the default position of most of the societies of the world at the time. Um, okay, so... So this is modernity. It is looking through the world. So now we have a happy stick man who's very proud of himself, who's very educated and smart, and he's looking through the world, and behind the world, he sees himself. He sees a person, um, an idealized person perhaps, or himself. He sees humanity. So this leads to a very distinct way of looking at the world. Um, there is a whole religious construct around that. Modernity uh, in modern religions... Uh, would fall under the umbrella of liberalism, and that's kind of a pejorative term in religious circles if you're conservative, uh, but it's just simply descriptive of uh, a religion, uh, whether it's Christianity or Islam or, or whatever, that interprets its religion around um, modern ideas where man is the final arbiter of uh, truth and is the center of, of um, is the fixed point of reference for truth. And so I talked a lot about that in uh, previous podcasts. You can go back and listen to the podcast on liberalism. A uh, thumbnail sketch on uh, modernity and, and classical, classical liberalism will be really interesting uh, because I talk about um, how, how naturalism um, or how um, modernity interacted with Christianity to create the liberal system. Um, and uh, I talk as well about how ethically speaking, well, Religion becomes all about ethics, and ethics becomes all about being good, and it is through being good that we find whatever sort of salvation we're going to get. And so it ultimately becomes a salvation of works, um, I argue. Uh, that's what liberalism is all about. So you can go back and listen to those podcasts. Um, the modern system was all about conquering the world through thought and through science, and, and it was characterized by a tremendous optimism that we're going to figure it all out. Uh, and um, in a book that I should find for my class, uh, 
think it was uh, preaching Christ to millennials or something like that. I'll find I'll find the link for my class. Um, one author compared modernity to Star Trek, the first generation, and Star Trek: The First Generation is all about uh, going where no man has gone before and conquering, you know, the unknown voids of space through through science and progress. And there was a great optimism that we're going to do this, and the way we're going to do that is by human ability, by human reason, by human thought, we're going to conquer um, the whole, not just the world, but the whole galaxy. And so this is really the thought system that characterized the 1700s, 1800s, and into the 1900s. Unfortunately, there is an Achilles heel of modernity. This whole system where the, this happy stick man is looking at the world. Behind the world, he sees a person, and he thinks he's got it all figured out. There's a problem, and the problem is probably apparent right away, that it's circular. Um, the person who needs a fixed point of reference is looking at the world, and he's using himself as the fixed point of reference. Uh, as Frank Peretti says, um, if you're looking for truth, don't look within yourself. You're the one who's confused. Um, so on its very most basic level, there's a circularity there. There's This, this isn't really going to work. And the reason it doesn't work is the same problem that Platonism had. One person looks through the world and says, well, my ideal perspective is this person. Another person looks through the world and says, my ideal perspective of the world is, is this. And so all that you end up with is all these different perspectives. If you only have perspectives, then you no longer have a way of examining the world, and you no longer have a way of discussing ethics in a way that is objective and unmoving. All that you have is personal opinions. And so we reduce back down to this place that we continually... I hope you get um, the repeated theme here, that it's like gravity pulling us away from objectivity back into subjectivity, and subjectivity is like this, it's failure um, when it comes to creating science, when it comes to creating ethics. Uh, at least that's my perspective on it, uh, based on what I've shared here. So modernity tried to continue the intellectual framework of pre-modernity, especially, you know, tried to continue with ethics, tried to continue with science, while rejecting God as a fixed point of reference and using man instead. But philosophers started to see that this doesn't make sense. Man can't work as the philosophical point of reference. Um, that creates subjectivity because it's, you know, you can say, well, God is here and he is unchanging, and, um, and that creates a point of reference. But humanity doesn't create the same uh, point of reference in the same way. Um, and this became especially apparent, and I have a, a blog post called um, How man, what's it called? How pluralism points out, calls the bluff of deism and forces it to become either fundamentalism or uh, relativism, something like that. Um, basically, my point is that modernity worked. It, it doesn't really make sense as a system, but it worked so long as most people that were moderns were basically Christian or deistic or had some sort of a shared belief system. And so when they said um, man is the center of all things, what they meant was man in the Christian conception of what a man is. Now, when we have so much travel, when we have so much interchange of ideas, 
there's so many different ideas out there now that it's impossible to say man, you know, is the center, is, um, is the arbiter of truth because man, according to a Hindu, man, according to a Buddhist, man, according to a Jew, man, according to who? Um, there's so many religious systems out there um, that there's, it's no longer possible to, to avoid the fact that we're, that we're cast adrift and all that we have is personal opinion. And so post-modernity is those who are audacious enough to point out the fact that the emperor has no clothes, uh, that yes, we have science, we have technology, we're roaring ahead on those fronts, but the foundations of, of why science makes sense, the foundations of why ethics makes sense, the foundations of why all of society, from politics to social conventions, everything, there, there is no foundation anymore. Um, this was all built on um, a pre-modern system where God was the center, and we tried to replace that with man, and that doesn't work. Um, even communication is not possible, and this is where um, Derrida and some, no Derrida, yeah, uh, and some of the early postmoderns started their work is to say, look, when you say something like fish, your idea of what a fish is comes from your experience of fish through your five senses and through secondary experience through what other people say but your perspective is always going to be different based on where you are in history based on where you are in time so when you say fish you're thinking one thing when I say fish I'm thinking something else and if our if we have a shared reality that's fine but if our reality is different then words don't don't have any meaning anymore because they all just express our own individual experiences, and all of our experiences are different. And so, I'm not sure if that made sense in, in the quick way that I expressed it, but uh, if you go far enough into postmodernity, you'll realize that language breaks down. Language is impossible because it's just an expression of my experience of the world, but everybody's experience is different, and there's no fixed point of reference um, if, if we're in an endless sea of waves, um, there's no way to say I'm, there's no way to express directionality, except perhaps in relation to one another, I'm closer to you or I'm further from you. If there is a tower sticking out of the water, then we can express directionality as far as I'm further from the tower or I'm closer to the tower. If there's two points of reference, then we can start to triangulate and say, where we are in the world, um, or where we are out on the water. In the same way, if, if, there, if uh, there is no fixed point of reference, if God doesn't work, and if humanity doesn't work, um, then we're completely cast adrift, and language completely breaks down, and um, everything else breaks down as well. Ethics is not possible, and that's usually the first thing to go uh, when you throw God out of the equation. Um, it's just your opinion versus my opinion. And again, and I think I mentioned this in the previous podcast, in the version that I kept, um, everybody gets excited when we talk about um, ethics don't exist, you make up your own rules, do whatever you want, because they all think about sex right away, and they all think about, okay, I can do whatever sexually I want. Um, but the question, the, the issue is so much larger than that. If we don't have an objective moral standard, then how can we say that the, 
the futuristic realities that were described in books like 18, uh, no, 1986 or uh, in uh, Brave New World. You know, these futuristic realities that are quickly becoming very real possibilities where the government controls everything, micromanages everything, mind controls everybody. How can we say that's wrong? If there's no objective moral values, you can't say that's wrong. You can just say you don't prefer that. But if the, the government, the, the person with the biggest stick says that this is what they prefer, they win. If most people are brainwashed into agreeing with it and going along with it, they win. If there's no objective moral right and wrong, uh, there's, no, there's no way to say that the king has sinned. And this becomes a huge problem as well in bioethics, and I know that Christians often um, get critiqued for, for being backwards on bioethics or on, on medical and ethics because we're, we're very focused on abortion as being wrong, which it is. Um, but there's, there's huge possibilities for, um, for very scary technology coming in. And if we don't have objective right and wrong, how are we going to be able to say... Um, it's wrong for you to do experiments on, on prisoners, uh, such as they did at Auschwitz. Um, how can you say that it's wrong to, to you know, kill people and use their body parts to heal other people? Things like this are going to become possible very soon. Um, or very likely um, using babies to, uh, to clone hearts and clone body organs and things like that using stem cells. Um, if there's no objective right and wrong, we can do whatever we want. And this, this is a really scary downward slope. Um, as well, and, um, well, because I'm in history, and that's, that's one of the fields that, that I'm, I'm fairly well, um, equipped in, um, there's a, a lot of people in history that are saying, look, it, History doesn't make sense anymore. It's just per people's perspectives on what happened. But everybody has a perspective. And then you ask, well, why did they write this? What's their inner, inner world? Um, and and you, you realize all that you have are opinions on, on what happened. You don't actually have real history. Real ha history doesn't exist. Um, and so post-modernity just kind of has this way of, well, the buzzword in, in post-modernity is deconstruction. Deconstructionism. Um, it has this way of just taking everything apart block by block because, um, yes, pre-modernity was able to create all these great systems of archaeology, of history, of science, of um, you know biology, chemistry, all these things. But if all that we have is perspective, then none of these things actually make sense. And so piece by piece, we have to start taking them apart. And nobody is pointing out the fact that, look, the reason that we have to take this apart is because we don't believe in God anymore. If we would just go back to a theistic system, or even a deistic system, even a, a system where there is a God, we don't know his name, but he's out there somewhere, kind of a platonic system, at least then we could save some of this. Uh, but in, in uh, post-modernity, we need to throw it all out and deconstruct. Even science is not possible um, on post-modernity, because the world is not separate from us. And this is... This is creeping back in in various fields where they talk about um, when you observe something, you're changing the world. Well, if you go too far with that, you'll realize if that's true, then science can't exist anymore. 
the world needs to be separate from us and objective from us, or else science can't exist. Um, and uh, the the whole proposition of natural sciences, which led up to applied sciences, which leads to technology, that whole thing is predicated on the world being separate, objective, and knowable, and rational. And if those things aren't true, um, then the whole scientific system falls apart. And there's no reason to believe that the world should be separate from us, knowable, uh, rational, and coherent, unless there's a God. At least there's no... There aren't very good reasons to believe that. I shouldn't say there's no reason. There's always somebody that comes up with something. Um, and whereas um, the pre-modern system and the modern system, well, especially the modern system, were characterized by extreme optimism, we will conquer the universe, we will conquer the world, we will create a great society. Post-modernity is characterized by a reality check and extreme depression about we're not going to figure it out. Um, our world is not a better place than when we found it. We are um, not a good people. And um, there is ultimately no meaning to life. And uh, there is a, a strong pull within post-modernity towards nihilism. Nihilism is the belief that life has no purpose, no meaning, and no value. Um, that's not to say that all postmodern, all postmoderns are depressed, um, because there's ways to manage your your sadness and your depression either through humor or through art or through poetry, finding meaning in this in the senselessness of life, um, and and certainly there is you know that option. Um, but postmodernity is, um, is, is the recognition that modernity failed and the admission that we don't have, we don't know where to go next. Um, it's, it's like standing at the edge of, um, at the edge of a cliff and saying, our whole society has been running off this cliff for as long as we can remember. We see the cliff. We know that it doesn't work. We know that this is wrong. This fails. But we don't know what else to do. We can't go back because that's the Middle Ages. We can't go forward because that's just jumping off a cliff. So what do we do? And postmodernity is just kind of this, this being stuck, seeing the problem more clearly than moderns ever did with better philosophy, better thinking, um, but being unable to move forward. There's no forward to. There's nowhere to go. And um, I was postmodern. Uh, I was part of the emergent movement back in 2008, 2009, or somewhere around there, 2007 to nine or so. Um, and I was proud to be, and I was excited to be, and I thought this was the way forward, and this was, you know, um, I believed as many postmoderns did at the time um, in the. Inevitable progress, evolution. Whatever is newer is better. Postmodernity is newer, therefore it is better. Uh, and I believe that I was on the cutting edge not only of world philosophy but also of church, um, thinking how to do church. Um, and yet eventually I realized uh, this is not a way to live. This is a way to die. This is postmodernity is not a way to live. It is a way to die. It is not a way to create a society. It is, it is a way to deconstruct piece by piece everything that um, is good about our society. It is not a way to do science. It is a way to deconstruct and uh, demolish science. It is not a way to do ethics. It is a way to deconstruct ethics. 
to where if you take ethics classes in most uh, schools, the, one of the first things they'll say is that ethics doesn't exist as far as an objective moral sense. All that we have is relativism, and here's you know the things that our society finds relatively important. Therefore, we'll talk about you know relative situational ethics. Um, Postmodernity um, is not a way to live; it's a way to die. And here's how I have conquered um, postmodernity because I was in it. I was very stuck. I was very confused by these ideas. And I came up with this question. Does God exist and does he speak? Does God exist and does he speak? If God does not exist and if God does not speak, postmodernity absolutely makes sense. And the only rational conclusion is that everything we, all the advances of Western society um, are nonsensical. They don't make sense. Uh, we can hold on to them because they're useful, but there's no ultimate meaning or purpose either in ethics or in science. If God exists but he does not speak, then that's Platonism. And that will work to a point, but at some point somebody's going to disagree with my view of God, and then we're going to reduce back down to perspectivism. So if God exists but he does not speak, that doesn't work either. If God exists and he speaks, then we have a way to get through... Um, then we have a way to um, destroy post-modernity then we have absolute truth. Then we can talk about what actually is. Then we can talk about a world that actually exists, that we can study, that is coherent, that is, um, that is unchanging. Then we can talk about ethics. Then we can talk about all the things in the West that have made us great. Um, and I would argue that this, and this is a pre-modern system. This is what they believe before modernity, before Rene Descartes, um, in the early 1500s came up with um, with his idea, sorry, the early 1600s came up with his idea of uh, modernity. And I'm going, and I would argue that pre-modernity is a very, very good system. It is responsible for um, the scientific revolution, for the renaissance before that, for the industrial revolution. It's responsible for every, th for all this, the ethical advancements in the West. Um, modernity is not responsible for that. Um, modernity just continued on with the progress of pre-modernity and um, in a lot of ways was like a child inheriting a fortune from his, his father and continuing on with the family business without the character, without the foundation perhaps of his father and then post-modernity is like the grandchild of, of the father that you know created the business and the grandchild is kind of just like throws it all away and goes drinking and boozing and um, doesn't care at all about um, about running the business and yet still has money to burn but we're going downhill fast that's kind of how I would that's how I personally feel about pre-modernity modernity and, and post-modernity um, everything that's good about Western society came from pre-modernity pre um, and modernity was just continuing on with the advances of pre-modernity, and post-modernity is only great insofar as we keep using the cool gadgets that were invented uh, during the science, scientific revolution. We keep using the cool science uh, that had its foundations back in the pre-modern era. Now, I recognize that my big 
um, obstacle at this point is going to be trying to free the pre-modern system from all the slander or the um, the pejorative language that has been heaped on it by modern period by modern people. Um, we need to talk about Galileo. We need to talk about the Crusades. We need to talk about talk about witch burnings. We need to talk about how women were treated, how slaves were treated, colonialism and corruption, um, because all these things are kind of packed into the mod the the pre-modern system to say we're rejecting all of that because of these things, the Crusades especially, and, and Galileo. And so we're going to talk about that, and uh, we're going to have a historical podcast coming up here soon. Um, but, what I want to impress on you is that post-modernity is the admission that modernity did not work. Post-modernity sees the problem, but doesn't know the solution. And I would say the solution is to go back to pre-modernity, to say that God is the center, um, and behind the world there is God, not just any God, but our God, who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. And the inevitable conclusion of this is that you need to choose. You need to choose a religion, and you need to choose, I believe Christianity is the one to choose. Which is what leads me to the conclusion that um, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When we look at the world, we need to look through the world to see Jesus. If we look through the world to see Jesus, we are in a pre-modern system, we're able to make sense of ethics, we're able to make sense of science, we're able to create a coherent society, we're able to have progress in science and in ethics. If we don't look through the world to see Jesus, if we either see some abstract concept of God, if we see some abstract concept of humanity, if we see a plurality of gods, anything else, we won't have truth in the objective sense. So I hope that made sense to you. If you want to discuss this, I keep saying that, but nobody ever does. That's fine. Uh, you can go to my blog, nolongabechildren.com or josiahmeyer.com. Find this podcast, uh, lay down your, your comments if you'd like, and uh, we're going to continue on now looking at um, the, uh, the misinformation that circulates around the Middle Ages and... Um, I hope that you'll join me there. Lord, I just thank you that you are truth and that you make yourself known to us. Thank you that you speak and that you reveal yourself to us. You've not left us as orphans, but you've come to us and um, you've rescued us, not just from our sins, but from our ignorance. And uh, I just thank you for that. And I pray that um, the um, the great sadness of post-modernity would be turned into gladness as people realize um, that ultimately you are the source of truth and uh, the only fixed point of reference that is workable. In Jesus' name, amen.